Turn with me to Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So as you flip to your Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way through. Just go to the books you really know, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and go backwards. Last week we talked, uh, we preached through the whole book of Joel, three chapters. And now we're going to take about four, five, six weeks to go through Malachi. Malachi and Joel are part of a group of writings in the Bible called the Minor Prophets, which has negative connotations, but it just means short, the shorter prophets. Their books are shorter. And they are generally a group of writings in which prophets go to God's people and say, you've sinned, God's going to judge you, repent. They're overlooked in America because we feel we've been so blessed that we've been sort of blinded by that. And so the minor prophets, like Malachi, like Joel, um, for many of us, we've never heard a sermon preached except for the one about tithing. So at the end of Malachi, it talks about tithing. So we'll get to that. But there's a lot of other stuff in the book of Malachi. So we're going to break it down and look at God's word to God's people and how that applies to us. So we're going to look at Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1 through 5. Okay, so some background. Think of the story of the Bible. God creates the world. Man sins. Garden of Eden. It's a fruit. Cursed. Suffers. And then you remember Moses? But before Moses, there was a guy named Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. And then he sets up a kingdom with Moses. Gives him the Ten Commandments, gives him the rules. Uh, David comes in. Well, when he gave Moses laws, he gave him requirements. Over the next, say, 500,000 years, guess what Israel did not do? They did not listen to the word of God. So when they broke the law of Moses, God sends prophets to them. Okay, so the book of Malachi is about a thousand years after Moses. So we think some stuff in America is old, you know, unless you're going back to the original inhabitants, Native Americans. The stuff we see in America that's old is only a couple hundred years. At this point, Israel's a thousand years old. And the prophet Malachi is saying to them, you made an agreement with God a thousand years ago, and you've broken it. And I'm here to warn you. So the prophets are simply God reminding people about what he told them and what they agreed to do and their relationship to the world around them. Okay, so let's look at Malachi chapter 1. In verse 1 it says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That word burden can also be translated prophecy or oracle. The prophecy of the word of the Lord to, to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. 
your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. This is the introduction to the book, and it sort of sums up the whole book. And there's some key things here, but the overriding thing about the book of Malachi, the whole Bible, is the greatness of God. That's what Malachi is about. How great God is. And then it goes into detail. How great is God? What has he done? So sometimes when we come to scripture, and when we come to church, and we come to services, and we hear sermons, our question is, how can this help me? How can I use this? What is this going to tell me to make my life better? But that is sinful, if that's our first impulse. Because the Bible is not about what God can do for us. It's about God. And so the prophet starts out by saying, God is great, man is not. So when we come to hear the scripture and hear the sermon, our goal should be, what am I going to learn about God? Now that will change us and it will help us and it will encourage us and it will grow us. But first, we have to say that God is worth hearing about. And look at the first verse here. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Part of the question that we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis is, where does truth come from? Who can we trust? What is reliable? If someone's trying to tell you something that's not true, that's not going to help you. And if you trust something that's not true, you're going to be disappointed. You may even be destroyed. If someone tells you that red lights are okay to drive through and you follow that advice, it's disastrous. Okay, so the preacher gets up behind a pulpit, and he has this sort of air of authority, right? You're sitting there, you're sort of listening to me as if I have something important to tell you. But what if what I'm telling you is not true? You'll be deceived and led astray and eventually destroyed. So this verse, this first verse tells us exactly the source of truth. The burden, the prophecy of the word of the Lord. Why should we listen to this book of Malachi? Because it's not from Malachi. It's from God. God gave it to Malachi to give to us, but that's not the source. So I will bring things to you. I will speak now, but it's not from me. It's from God. And that's why we open our Bible so we can see and check. So the burden, the prophecy, not the word burden there is intentional. When God speaks, that's serious. That's heavy. That's solemn. So the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We believe the Bible, not because it's simply true or because it's helpful or because it works out. We believe the Bible because it's God speaking to us. If God is true, his word is true. If God is perfect, his word is perfect. If God is without error, his word is without error. If God has authority, his word has authority. You see how the connection works? Why should you listen to me preach? Because I'm bringing you the word of God. Why should you believe this? Because it's the word of God. It doesn't matter if you believe it, it's still the word of God. It doesn't matter if you understand it, it's still the word of God. But our goal here is to listen to God, and we hear that in the scripture. That's important in a general sense of as we approach the Bible, because there's a lot of attacks from the world that say the Bible is not true, or it's mostly true. It's mostly true. 
well, which part of God's word is mostly true? Which part of God is mostly true? You see how that breaks down? Either God is all true or he can't be trusted. So either God's word is all true or it can't be trusted. So the word of God comes to Israel by Malachi, the messenger, and it has a message. And the message of the whole book of Malachi, especially in this passage, God is great, and God's greatness is revealed two ways, his love and his destruction. His grace and his justice, and that calls for praise. God's greatness calls for praise, and God's greatness is revealed in his grace and his wrath. So let's look at this passage. The first thing God says to Israel, the first words out of God's mouth to Israel from Malachi is, I have loved you. Don't underestimate the importance of that. We're like, okay, let's get on. No, stop. The first thing God wanted them to know was, I love you. Before we get to the rest of it, because it gets bad. The rest of this book gets pretty bad. Before that, he says, I loved you. You see, they can't hear the rest of the message unless they know God loves them. They can't understand who God is unless they know how God feels about them. So he starts out with what his relationship with them is. Now, one of the big questions in society and in, in human life, what is love? There's even a song about it, which everyone's probably singing now. It's a great song. Yeah, someone's even doing the head motions. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Why is that song so popular? Partly because it's catchy, but partly because isn't that a question we all have? What is love? I love you. What do you mean by that? I'm in love with someone. What's that mean? So what does it mean when God says, I love you? And if you actually listen to that song, it's really about we don't know what's going on. It's about you know, people hurting each other. And... So is that what God's about? This sort of love that's unsure? What is it? What does it mean? How does it help us? When we look at Scripture, when God says he loves, we have to put out of our mind every romantic movie we've seen. Those were all written thousands of years after this was written. So we've been shaped by our culture, haven't we? So we think love is certain things because of what we've been taught. But what's the Bible say? And we'll see in this passage, in the Bible as a whole, love is emotional, but it's not just emotional. So I heard one preacher say, love is passionate commitment. It's not just commitment. It's passionate. There's emotions. There's desire. There's feelings involved. God gets angry. God feels jealous for his people. But it's not just feelings either, because that's most of what we've been taught. There's the feeling of love. It's commitment. So when God says to his people, I have loved you, he says, I have had a passionate commitment for you. And a commitment to what? Notice when this book was written. So in the story of Israel, God gives them the prophecy, or gives them the law, to Moses. Hundreds of years pass. And if you read through the Bible, they were not good years. What would happen to Israel? They would break the law. God would send in an invader, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They would rule over Israel. Israel would repent. They'd raise up someone like Samson or Elijah. They would repent, and God would drive away the oppressor. 
And that sort of repeats over and over again through the book, through the Bible. But eventually, Israel sins so badly that God says, we're going to have to be more extreme. And so he sends Babylon to Israel, about 500, and he removes them from the land. He kidnaps the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they kidnap Israel and export them. Can you imagine that? Imagine an invading army shows up to America. They fight, they win, they don't rule over us. They put us on ships and they take us to another place. See the horror of that? Of exile? That's what happened to Israel. And it was to teach them that if you reject God, there's nothing left for you. But then they repent. And about 445, there's books in the Bible about this, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, or not Nehemiah, but um, Ezra. They return. Can you imagine that, getting going back to the land God has given you after so long? They rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. Everything's going to be great, isn't it? This is 100 years after that. And God shows up. Why is God still around? What is Israel doing this whole time? They're not loving God. They're not serving God. But God shows up again with a word. And he says, I've loved you. I still love you. God says, I'm committed to this relationship even though you aren't. I love you even though you don't love me. God says, I'm going to make this relationship work because I love you. You see the model there for true love? It doesn't depend on the other person loving you back. It doesn't depend on the person doing the right thing. God's model of love is says, I've chosen to love you. I've made a commitment to you, and that's it. I'm still here a thousand years later, and all the problems have been uh, associated with that. And what is God's purpose for Israel? To raise them up. Love says, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to the relationship for your good. See, often we get into relationships for our own sake, don't we? So we can get something out of them. Commitment, so we can get companionship, so we can get affirmation. All these things we get out of relationship. God said, this is for you. Because I love you. And when you love someone, your motivation and your goal is their good. So when God opens with, I have loved you, He's saying all this. God made a covenant with the people of Israel. He said to Abraham, their original forefather, we're going to be together forever. I'm going to take care of you and all of your children and all of your descendants. And Abraham had no responsibility in that. God made the commitment. God made the covenant and so now 1,000, 1,500 years later, 2,000 years later, God is honoring that covenant. You see how great God is? God doesn't forget his promises. 2,000 years go by and God still has not forgotten his promise to the people of Israel. That's why he brought them out of Egypt. Remember they were enslaved in Egypt? Why did God go get them? Because he made a promise to Abraham. Why has God showed up again? Because he made a promise. Love from God means that God doesn't give up and God doesn't wait for you to come back. Look what the whole passage is. 
the burden of the Lord, of the word of the Lord to Israel. Israel did not go looking for God because Israel didn't love God. God went looking for Israel because God loves Israel. God is proactive. If it was up to us, if it was up to God's people to go look for God, it never happened. Only because God comes for us do we have the chance to respond. So only because God says, I have loved you, so I'm talking to you. I loved you, so I sent someone to talk to you. I loved you, so I'm here. Now you get to respond. True love is proactive. God is love, therefore God seeks his people. That should comfort you. God's already looking for you. God's already going out of his way to meet you. God has set up appointments in your life where he's going to confront you. You don't need to set them up. You don't need to go find God. God comes looking for you, just like he did with his people then and just like he does now. And what's even better, look what it says. I have loved you, says the Lord, says the creator God. Yet you say to this amazing declaration of the holy creator, all-powerful God, their response is, in what way have you loved us? Prove it. I don't see it. And so here's another thing about God's love. It's patient. God could have said, are you kidding me? It's been a thousand years of you messing up, and I'm here, and you want to know how I love you? He doesn't say that, does he? He says, I still love you. God sacrifices for his relationships. Think about what God is doing here. Think about Israel. So this is a hundred years after they've returned from captivity. And if you ever know anything about people who've been in captivity, a hundred years after that, they don't have anything. They're small in number. They're small in wealth. Why'd God show up? What was God getting out of this relationship? What did Israel have to offer God? God says, I loved you. I'm going to go out of my way to have a relationship with you. And Israel's response was, what's the big deal? I don't see anything. They complain. So God's love goes to people who have nothing that he needs, has nothing he wants. And he says, it's okay. I'm still going to take care of you. I'm still going to pursue this relationship. So if you want to be like God, you need to look at your relationship as what you can give and not what you get from someone. If, if you are always looking about what you can give and get, then everything's going to depend on how good the other person is. If God worked that way, he would have abandoned Israel a long time ago. And to be honest, he would have abandoned us. We've got nothing to offer God. What do we have that God needs? Does he need our money? We don't have that much of it. Does he need our efforts? We don't work that hard. Does he need our purity? We're not pure. Just like Israel. So God's love sacrifices and chooses a people for him to love, not to receive. God is great because God loves his people. But God is also great because he judges his enemies. He loves his people, but he destroys his enemies. So look what it says here. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Where's our kingdom? Where's our money? 
Where's our status? Where's our prestige? Because at this time, Israel was a nobody. They were oppressed by their neighbors. They had nothing. And so they're saying, doesn't look like you love us. What have you done for us lately? And God says, let me show you how I love you. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? So going back, Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham, I'll take care of you and your descendants. Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac's son, we had two. Twins. Equal parts of the family. Jacob and Esau. And yet God chooses to bless Jacob and not Esau. God chooses to love Jacob and judge Esau. He says, yet Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. You say, well, what, God hates somebody? What, what Esau, what's wrong with Esau? This is setting up God's relationship. God is perfect and holy and just and righteous. So when he looks at someone, he responds to what they do. If they sin, he judges them. If they're perfect, he rewards them. So he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And they say, well, how have you loved us? Because Esau's descendants, Edom, we seem to be the same as them. He says, but Esau have I hated and laid waste his mountains, his heritage, for the jackals of the wilderness. Does that sound like God loving Israel? It doesn't, does it? He's saying, I love you. Look how much I love you. I destroyed Esau. I destroyed his descendants called Edom. Israel would say, well, where's my stuff? What God is saying is, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that get what they deserve and those that God loves. Esau got what he deserved, which here he says God hated him. Jacob got loved instead of getting what he deserved. The chief evidence for God's love is what he didn't do to Jacob. That's what he's telling them. He goes, you know how much I love you? Look what I didn't do to you. Look what I did to Esau and Edom. You see how much I love you? I didn't lay waste to your land. I didn't return your sins to you like he did with Edom. And you say, well, man, that's not fair. What did Esau do? They were both born with Jacob. What? It's not fair. It's grace. You see, grace doesn't work on fairness. Otherwise, you'd get what you deserve. Now, we often think we should get what we deserve. But this is what we deserve, what Esau got. Impoverished, desolate, the territory of wickedness. Now, in the historical context, what did Edom do? Edom did two things. So Edom is, they're, they're neighbors. So imagine if Israel was Severn. Edom would be Glen Burnie. So we kind of miniaturized it. So if we were Israel, Edom would be Glen Burnie. So when Babylon shows up to destroy Edom, to destroy Israel, to take them captive, what do their neighbors do? They laughed. They couldn't have really helped them that much because they were small and weak too. But they didn't even provide moral support. In Psalm 137, it says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Destroy it, destroy it, to its very foundation. When Babylon showed up, Edom stood at the edge of the territory and said, Do it, 
Kill them. Get them. Destroy them. They didn't destroy Israel. They just cheered on the people who did. And so God says, so I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to give you exactly what you deserve. You cheered on destruction, you will be destroyed. And Obadiah, it says, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, that's when Babylon came to destroy Israel, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Israel, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity. Think about what God's judging them for, and let's apply it to ourselves. He's not saying you destroyed Israel. He said you stood by while it happened. He said the justice, the judgment on you is for watching someone else oppress my people. See, most of us are going to be like, we don't hurt people. We don't oppress people. We don't treat people badly. Great. That's good. You're not Babylon. But do you watch other people do it? Do you see it happen and let it go? Look what God does to people who see oppression and do nothing. Impoverished. I will throw down, they shall be called the territory of wickedness. If you watch oppression happen and do nothing, you are part of the territory of wickedness. That's a high standard, isn't it? Yes, what's the standard? Holiness. God himself. Apathy, in God's eyes, is part of the problem. Now, we live in a big country, don't we? And with the news media, we get to see everything that happens. And sometimes we tell ourselves, well, I can't do anything about it, so I'm just not going to do anything about it. Just like Edom would have said, we can't stop Babylon, so we're not going to. How many of us watch things happen and do nothing, say nothing, feel nothing? That's wicked. And God judges Edom for that. They could have joined Israel. You see, God could have shown grace to them if they would have repented. Be like, oh, this is not fair. Jacob gets everything and Esau has no chance. Wait, what could have Edom done in the day of, of captivity? They could have walked themselves over to Jerusalem and said, we're with you. What would have happened to Edom? They would have been carried away into captivity. They would have been destroyed. But then they would have been saved. You see, God is saying, Israel is my people. If you want to be loved, join with my people. Edom said no. And so we can do the same thing. We can say, it's too much work. We can see Christians, our own brothers and sisters, being oppressed and say, ah, I'm not going to, no. And then we side with Edom. God's love is contrasted to God's fairness. Do you want God to treat you fairly or do you want God to love you? This is the contrast. God is telling Israel, you ask how I love you. I didn't destroy you. Do you feel like God loves you right now? Sometimes you don't, do you? You say, well, God's taken things from me. 
I've prayed for things that I need and God has not given them to me. I'm suffering. God has not relieved it. This is for you. God is saying, but you're still here. You're still with me. I'm still speaking to you. I haven't cast you into hell. That's how much I love you. It's recalibrating what we think we deserve from God. We think God's love means gives us a bunch of stuff. But God's love means he doesn't destroy us. He preserves us. He protects us. He brings his own presence into our life. And until we're satisfied with that, we'll never have enough stuff. We'll never have enough gifts. We'll never get enough from God to be happy until we can see right here that we should be satisfied with the grace of life, of mercy. Israel was so self-centered, so conceited, so prideful, so sinful, that they couldn't see that they were still around only because God loved them. And so God sends a word to them, and he sends a word to us. God's love protects you from his justice. Without God's love, you are exposed to justice to judgment. Do you see how it works? For us, how do we see God's love? Forgiveness. For God so loved the world. How? That he gave it a bunch of money. For God so loved us that he gave us a new house. For God so loved us that he fixed all our relationships. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you have Jesus, you know God loves you. If you have Jesus and nothing, you have God's love. And if you have everything but you don't have Jesus, you have God's justice, God's destruction. So the call to the people of Israel and the call to us is turn from this world, turn from ourselves, and turn to the love of God. Turn to Christ who paid for our sins. And say, God, you loved us so much that you are with us. And whether I get that house or that car or that healing, doesn't matter. You've not promised any of those things. You've only promised your love. Turn from sin. Turn from greed and envy. You know your prayers can reveal your greed? Lord, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Where is the Lord? Thank you. Lord, thank you for just being here. America is so wrapped up in consumerism that we can't see past it and that we judge God's love by his gifts. There are preachers all across America that are preaching that you can know God loves you by what he gives to you. That's a false gospel. You know God's love for you because he sent Jesus to die for you. It's all you have, and it's all you need. It's all Israel needed was God himself. In Romans chapter 9, we read this morning earlier, he quotes from this passage, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It goes on to say, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, 
has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Are you trying to get things from God by being good, by working hard, by trying, by caring, by not sinning? You will not get it. You will never achieve God's goodness by trying. Either God gives it to you or you don't get it. Israel is being told and we're being told, stop trying and believe. Trust. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It's so easy that we can't comprehend it, can we? Like, okay, we got that. But now, what do we do to get God's love? How many times do we have to go to church so we know God loves us? How much Bible do we have to read to get God's love? How many sins do we have to not sin to get God's love? That's all works. You can't attain God's righteousness. You can't attain God's love by works. You simply trust him and he gives it to you. But that's a word of hope. You don't have to be a good person. You don't have to be anything. You just have to receive it. We can go to bed at night and rest because it's not up to us. We can worship God with purity and with holiness and with just complete joy because it doesn't matter how we do it. It only matters that God loves us. Faith in Christ is the grounds for God's love. Without faith in Christ, you get God's judgment. And what's the point of all this? What's God's purpose in choosing these people that he didn't have to choose? See, we're so used to God choosing Israel that we think that's just the way it is. He didn't have to choose Israel. Why Israel? He says it multiple times. Why did I choose you, Israel, and not the Canaanites? Why did God choose Israel and not Egypt? Why did God choose Israel and not America? What's the reason? Nothing in us produces God's love. So why did he choose Israel? He says in his last verse, Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. If God can do it with Israel, he can do it with anybody. God is so great. God is so great that he can take this tiny group of people and protect them for thousands of years. And even though they reject him over and over again, he still maintains his power over them. God's greatness, God's praise is the point of all this. So what's our response to this? Praise God. Magnify his greatness. If you see God's greatness, you will praise him. If you're not praising God, you don't see his greatness. In Ephesians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. See that the election? Before we did anything? Not dependent on us? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. See that the love of God? Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. 
You were saved so that you could tell God how great he is. You were saved so that you could tell other people how great God is. That's why you have been saved, to glorify and praise God. And God says, I'm going to give you so many things that you will never lack for praise. When our praise falls down, when our praise goes away, it's because we're not looking at what God has already done. We're not looking at reality. Look what he says here. Your eyes shall see. You're just going to open your eyes. You're going to say, there it is. There's the real world. He's calling us to do the same. You know why you're unhappy? Because you've created an illusion of what you deserve and what you think you should have, and it's not working out. God is saying to you, open your eyes. Look at what I did for you in Christ. Just look at it. Just look at Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. And if you look, you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of, his, of Israel. If you see Christ, you will praise him or you'll be destroyed. See the option? You're either on God's side or you're not. And all of that has been done through Christ. So what our call is, just like it was to Israel, turn away from yourself. Turn away from all that you think you should have and all that you don't have, and perhaps all that you have. Turn to God. Let go of this world and turn to God. And God in his grace and love, he will accept you based on what Christ has done. I'll conclude with this prayer from Howard Thurman, a, a famous civil rights leader of the last century. A prayer of repentance, of praise, one that if we pray this, we'll have answered God's call. My ego is like a fortress. I have built its walls stone by stone to hold out the invasion of the love of God. But I have stayed here long enough. There is light over the barriers, oh my God. The darkness of my house forgive and overtake my soul. I relax the barriers. I abandon all that I think I am all that I hope to be, all that I believe I possess, I let go of the past. I withdraw my grasping hand from the future. In the great silence of this moment, I alertly rest my soul. As the seagull lays in the wind current, so I lay myself into the spirit of God. My dearest human relationships, my most precious dreams, I surrender to his care. All that I have called my own, I give back. All my favorite things, which I would withhold in my storehouse, I let go. I give myself unto thee, O oh my God. Amen. Let's pray.